I'm Walter Olson. I'm with the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Welcome also to those of you watching in on the web at cato.org slash events. The Twitter hashtag for today is uh, hash Cato events, and uh, you can talk about what's going on. Uh, we might even look at it for questions you might want to ask. We are here to discuss the crisis of America's law schools. And as an outsider, what got me interested in law schools was the way they are such a leading source of opinion about how all the rest of us ought to be governed. Uh, areas that I write about, like consumer protection, uh, anti-competitive business practices, uh, the tendency of the regulator to capture their regulators and turn them to bad account. Uh, if you want an opinion on any of those things, uh, if you're a journalist, you will probably uh, call a law professor uh, sooner or later. And certainly it was that way after the tremendous collapse of the mortgage bubble in 2008 that nearly took down the American economy. Law professors were in the forefront, uh, not just Elizabeth Warren, but many others, of pointing out the bad practices that had led to the collapse of the bubble, the way that <clears throat> naive people had been talked into expensive houses that they had no, no real business trying to own, uh, <clears throat> sold through very deceptive sorts of literature, uh, mortgages that they really had no hope of repaying, <clears throat> how the mortgages themselves were manipulated by uh, canny use of rating systems, which wound up to be extremely unreliable rating systems in trying to figure out how safe the uh, investments were, and of course captured regulators. Now at the same time that all of this was unfolding in a macro level for mortgages, uh, something was going on with graduates of these law schools themselves. Uh, tens of thousands of them uh, were finding that they had been uh, sold into legal educations somewhat more expensive and capacious than they could necessarily wind up using in actual employment, that the promotional materials, things like job placement uh, records that these schools had been using were not just falsified or exaggerated here or there, but were really systematically uh, dishonestly promoted. Uh, the, the law schools had become past masters at fiddling with ratings, uh, which were grotesquely unreliable, uh, in part because of their successful manipulation. And that the accreditation process, uh, far from being a way of protecting consumers or anyone else, uh, <clears throat> had been captured and turned into a key instrument by which the schools were pursuing their self-interest. Well, when these revelations came out in uh, journalistic exposés, uh, for a while, legal academia tended to circle its wagons and say that nothing was wrong, and uh, this was a very mi unfair misunderstanding by journalists of the public-spirited way in which they had gone about uh, offering illegal education, uh, which was uh, clearly beneficial to the students. This began to wear thin after the crisis went on uh, year after year, and it has totally collapsed with the publication of... <coughs> Our, our speaker, Brian Tamanaz's book, Failing Law Schools, which, um, uh, believe me, nails them on every single one of these points, as they have never been nailed before. Uh, Professor Tamanaz was named in one recent uh, ranking as the most influential man of the moment in legal academia, and it is entirely deserved. Uh, everyone interested in this subject should read Failing Law Schools. Um, a word about both Professor Tamanaya and the two commenters, so that we can get all the introductions out of the way. 
Uh, Brian Tamanai is a professor at Washington University in law, uh, law school in St. Louis. He is the um, uh, he has had the kind of uh, legal background uh, as varied as pretty much anyone you can think of. He practiced law in Hawaii and somehow wanted to stop doing that. Uh, he has served as legal counsel for the Micronesian Constitutional Convention. Uh, he has a doctorate from Harvard Law School and has spent a year at Princeton at the Center for uh, uh, Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, he's the author of seven books, including, uh, in particular, I, I recommend his book, Beyond the Formalist-Realist Divide, The Role of Politics in Judging. Uh, he is also very much an insider, having served uh, as a dean and uh, university official uh, looking at and indeed furthering some of the same policies that he criticizes so well in this book. Neil McCluskey, our first commenter, is the Associate Director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Um, <clears throat> all three of our speakers today have remarkably varied backgrounds. Neil has taught high school English. He has been a reporter covering education as well as municipal government issues. Uh, he has a master's in political science from Rutgers and is uh, completing his PhD in public policy at George Mason, uh, a frequent guest and author of the book Feds in uh, the, the Classroom. Uh, Neil writes regularly on the role of federal funding in higher education, which, as we will see, is critical in this story, too. And finally, Paul Campos, professor of law at the University of Colorado. Uh, he has been teaching there since 1990. Uh, as a scholar, he is focused on constitutional law. He did a graduate thesis on Shakespeare's King Lear in, in English literature. And as law professors go, and I have edited many of them, uh, Professor Campos uh, is distinguished in that he really can write. Uh, you indeed have probably read his writing in the New Republic, uh, his syndicated newspaper column, uh, his writings on everything from, the, uh, as, as his second book was titled, Juris Mania, the Madness of American Law, uh, to Obesity Policy, where he's been a major commenter. And in the debate over law schools, uh, I will uh, not give much away when I say that he is the bad cop to Professor Tamanaha's good cop. Uh, his critique of law schools uh, is symbolized by the uh, title of his riveting blog, Inside the Law School Scam, which is filled almost daily with remarkable letters from students who uh, are floundering with the results of their legal educations. And <clears throat> Legal academia knows very well that if it does not heed the more modest and reasonable critique of Professor Tamanaha, they may be completely overthrown by the Jacobins uh, who follow Professor Campos. So please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Brian Tamanaha. Thank you for that introduction, uh, Walter. The thesis of my book, the core idea in the book, is that the cost uh, of a legal education is far out of proportion to the economic return that the majority of students uh, obtain. And I show this in a variety of ways. Uh, what I want to do today is just give you some of the basic numbers, because in order to have a sense of how problematic the situation is, uh, you need to see them. Now, the, what I'll focus on uh, are tuition, debt, jobs, and salaries. And at the end of it, I'll talk about what can only be described as a dramatic market correction going on right now uh, that has uh, implications for what will happen with law schools going forward. But let me just start with some of the basics. Uh, and I've used just a relatively recent period, 2001. So private law school tuition, these numbers come from the ABA. 
Average tuition was 23,000 in 2001. In 2012, it was over 40,000. Uh, public law school tuition went up from 8,500 to 24 or 2,300. Uh, now, this was a relatively low inflation period. Uh, and I've gone back to 1985. And if, if law school tuition had gone up constant with the rate of inflation since 1985, average private school tuition today would be 16,000 instead of 40,000. And public school tuition would be uh, 4,300. The chart just compares the rise of tuition against the rate of inflation. So you can see that gap we've extracted. This is from 1985. The blue line is law school tuition. The red line is, uh, is inflation. We have extracted a significant premium uh, over inflation during this period. And I, I, won't, I begin at that because we've gone up every year in excess of, uh, of inflation. Now, this is just raw amounts. I took this off of the Business Insider website. Uh, this includes. Uh, Tuition, living expenses, insurance, and now all of those estimates and all of this information comes from the law schools themselves. Columbia Law School tops the list. This is annual, annual cost at just under $82,000. Uh, these were the top 10 schools. 10th was New York Law School at $75,000. The out-of-pocket cost at these schools is, uh, ranges between $225,000 to $245,000. Now, I need to add a couple of more uh, things about this. One is that uh, this is the list price. So many students uh, uh, obtain discounts, roughly between 40 and 60% of students in law schools. The schools have different policies on it, uh, obtain scholarships. So not everyone is paying this price. Uh, but students are paying the price. Uh, and in, in many schools, about half of the students pay full price. Uh, the other thing I need to emphasize is, although I stop at, at at, at the 10th uh, most expensive law school, 11, 12, 13, 14, they're just a 1,000 lower, lower, lower. It just kind of goes down in small steps. Several dozen schools, the out-of-pocket cost at several dozen schools today exceeds $200,000. Now, these are mainly private uh, uh, law schools. And about 2 thirds of the schools are private law schools. And there are a few public law schools that charge at the private law school level. The elite uh, public schools do as well. Now, 90% of uh, law students finance their education through debt. This is because they've already spent a lot of money going to undergraduate uh, institutions. And the rise in tuition has been reflected in a remarkable rise in debt. Again, I just compare this relatively recent period from 2001 to 2011. Average debt at private law schools was 70,000. Uh, in 2011, it was 125,000. What's even more remarkable about this increase is that in recent years, it's gone up by greater and greater amounts. Uh, so but in, in 2010, the average debt of private law grants was 106,000. So it went up from 106 to 125,000 in just one year. In 2009, the average debt of private law grants was 92,000. So if you look at the, the size of the increase every year, it's remarkable. Uh, private law school grants, uh, the debt again, significant jump. Uh, now it's up to 75,000. Uh, the, the amounts are lower simply because the average tuition is lower. Uh, another important uh, piece of information I need to add to this is that these average debt numbers are just debt numbers. These, these numbers are reported by the law schools to the ABA. These numbers only include debt taken out while in law school. And uh, several years ago, the uh, administration removed the subsidy on debt while in law school. So their debt begins, the interest begins to accrue immediately upon the loans taken out. So these numbers actually understate 
the actual amount owed upon graduation. In addition to that, these numbers do not include undergraduate debt, which averages about $25,000-$26,000 now. So if you want to get an actu accurate picture of, of the real debt situation carried by recent gra graduates, we're talking $150,000 and up. This is a list of the most indebted law uh, schools uh, with the highest average debt. Uh, $150,000 tops the list. On the right, uh, in, in bold, I have included the percentage of the graduating class of 2011, nine months after graduation, that had obtained full-time jobs as lawyers. So at the top law school, California, Western Law School, the most indebted law school, they left with a gra uh, an average debt over 150000 and only 39% obtained uh, full-time jobs as lawyers. At the bottom, uh, this is number 10, uh, Whittier College, uh, the graduates had an average debt of 139000 and 17% of the graduates had obtained full-time jobs as lawyers. Now, graduates obtain other kinds of jobs, but I use this as the core employment rate uh, simply because it's, it's, it's the reason most people go to law school. And you can see from these results the combination of huge debt and uh, quite terrible uh, employment results. Uh, these are big numbers. So what I try to do, and I do it in greater detail in the book, is break down what debt levels at that amount mean. Someone with a debt of $150,000 has $1,800 monthly payment. $125,000, the average, has $1,400. Uh, you can go on, there are all kinds of websites, a variety of websites to work this out. But essentially, you have to earn way above $100,000 to manage debt levels this high. And uh, the national median salary for 2011 was $60,000. I'll get in more into that in a moment because even that number is inflated. The implication of this, or just to kind of encapsulate the situation for you, law students with the average debt can't cover the monthly payments on the median salary. And that, for me, is a sign of the structural mismatch uh, we have within the system. As a consequence of this, thousands of law students will be on IBR, so income-based repayment. It's a government program that reduces your monthly <coughs> loan payments according to a formula related to your income. The basic formula is this, that, uh, that up to 150% of the poverty rate for, uh, for a person of family size, and they give different poverty rates, you pay zero on your monthly loan payments, and you won't be in default. And then taking your salary, say, $40,000, <coughs> and the poverty rate of a family of three is $27,000, what you pay is 10% of your income between $40,000, your actual salary, and the poverty rate for a family of three. And this will come out to a couple hundred dollars a month. At the end of uh, a 20-year period, this is a new program. Uh, it was recently changed. The terms were altered. The balance of the loan, the remaining balance of the loan is forgiven. Uh, now, I don't have any numbers on, on what, uh, on the number of students actually in the Speak to the I don't have numbers on the actual, no, I don't have the actual numbers of students enrolled in IBR, but simply <coughs> looking at the results tells you that it, it has to be um, many thousands. Uh, this is just a summary of the basic uh, numbers. 55% of the graduates in, of the class of 2011, nine months after graduation, had obtained full-time jobs as lawyers. That's 55%. Now, legal educators often say, well, maybe they got a job at, uh, 10 months after, 11 months after. And we don't have numbers on that. We don't know 
I'll just suggest to you that it will be difficult after that because three months later, a, a whole new class of graduates will come out. And we do have other data on unemployment. The longer you're unemployed, the harder it is to get a job. 12% of the graduates of that year were in part-time jobs. Many of those part-time jobs were paid for by the law schools themselves. Uh, the idea being to help graduates in distress, but the other aspect of this policy is that it helps us boost our employment rates because we count graduates hired. Now, part-time jobs, I'm talking about $15 an hour jobs uh, with, with different uh, hour limits. The median salary for that year was $60,000, but again, I, and this is a salary figure I reported in the previous slide, but I need to modify this because only 65% of the graduates provide salary information, and from past patterns, we know that the students who earn the most tend to report their salaries in 90% range, and students who are, earn the least tend to not report their salaries. So the actual median is lower, but we just don't know what it is. Uh, and the last... Uh, piece is that half of the graduates nationwide earn between 45000 and 60000 What's important about that figure, again, relates to the debt figure. If you had the average debt, you can't make the monthly payments on those salaries, and that's half of the graduates nationwide. And again, that's why they, they'll have no option, ultimately, other than to enter IBR. This is, a, this is the, it's called a bimodal distribution of pay. It's, it's, <laughs> the distribution of starting salaries for new graduates. And law has, a, has an odd distribution of salaries because it has two different earnings clusters. The earning cluster in the, uh, on the far right, uh, that earning cluster is around $160,000. Those students uh, are, are able to cover the monthly loan payments. And that num now that number is below 10%. It used to be higher uh, of the total number of graduates. The problem is that most students end up uh, below, the, the second uh, earnings cluster ends up below $75,000, and those are the students uh, where, again, over half of the students end up at. The important thing to note about this uh, from the law school standpoint is that these aren't evenly distributed around schools. The top schools have m many of their graduates go into that uh, right-hand cluster, and then very quickly outside of the top, uh, the, the number of students who obtain jobs goes down to zero um, at, at lower ranks. Or at rank 25, maybe it's 10%, 5%. At rank 50, it could be one or two people. And then outside of that, very often it's no one. And the entire class, in other words, will end up in the second earnings cluster. Now remember, they're all paying the same, roughly the same amount of tuition to end up with these results. Uh, these are, again, just general numbers. We know, going back to, to 2001, that at least one-third of graduates uh, have not obtained jobs as lawyers nationwide. I, I had to stop at 2001 because they changed the method of compiling statistics, so I couldn't go back earlier. But I've seen a variety of indications that this number, uh, that, that even in the 90s, uh, there were about a third not getting jobs as lawyers. 2009, uh, at 30 law schools, half or more of the grads didn't get jobs as lawyers. In 2011, at 75 law schools, half or more didn't. What happened is a contraction in the legal market, a quite significant one. It's not getting better. In fact, a report was released yesterday by Citibank that was quite dire in its projection uh, for the coming year. Uh, and then this is the big uh, shocking number. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics projects about 22,000 openings annually through 2020, and by openings, that includes newly created uh, positions via economic expansion, and it includes departures from the profession, people retiring or, 
or deciding to uh, take other positions. Now that's 22,000 openings annually and law schools have been graduating over 40,000 students annually in recent years. In fact, this coming uh, year, the graduating class of 2013 will be the largest class we've had. Uh, and it'll be the largest class because when the, when the economy collapsed in 2010, as often happens when the economy goes down, our, our applicant numbers went up and then, so law schools took in more students. Uh, we took in 52,000 students in 2010. Now there's, a, there's attrition, so not, the, the, the number graduating will be somewhere around 45 or 46,000. Uh, and again, that's onto a market with about 22,000 jobs. Uh, very quickly, I, let me just point out the, the chart. The, often legal educators say that this is just a recent situation as a result of the collapse in the legal market. So the red diamonds are the employment results uh, from 2007, which was the best year by all accounts. And what the chart shows is that uh, even in 2000, and the, sorry, the blue diamonds are from 2009, that even in, in 2007, the best year possible, the graduates from the top 20 schools were doing fairly well, placing, uh, lawyer, placing in lawyer jobs in the 90% range. But once you go below that, significant percentages of graduates of classes uh, of law schools nationwide were not landing jobs as lawyers. Uh, so indeed, the situation is much worse, that those are the blue, but, this, but fundamentally the situation wasn't, that, wasn't different in the sense that the best schools had the best results and then very quickly uh, a bunch of schools had poor results. Uh, let me just add one other thing. Throughout this period, 2007, 8, 9, Law schools had been advertising 90 to 100 percent employment rates in the uh, the in the U.S. News report. The top one, all but two of the top 100 schools advertised a re employment rate in excess of 90 percent of the class, uh, and the two laggards were 89 percent. Uh, in the second hundred, um, most also claimed employment <laughs> rates in the 90 percent uh, range. In this chart, I'm charting the rise of law school tuition, and I'm comparing it with the rise of undergraduate tuition, and these are just for private colleges. Uh, and what I wanted to show from this is that we've actually both been doing the same thing. If I charted, if I added the inflation line, it would be below that. Uh, we've both been going up. The difference is that law schools started higher on average, and we went up at a slightly higher rate. So the gap is significantly greater when you get to today, and therefore more painful. But fundamentally, we are responding, uh, or we're, we're raising tuition in a, in a similar way. Uh, and one of the implications I take from this is that many of the specific explanations legal educators give for the rise of tuition, uh, increase of technology, competition over US news, uh, giving money to universities who treat us as a cash cow, while all of those have some relationship to what's going on, I take this similarity to suggest that tuition is going up for the same reason, it's because we can raise it. We can raise it uh, as a function of the willingness uh, and the ability of students to come. The willingness to come to law school simply is a function of the belief that they've had that it pays off. Uh, and that belief was, uh, was uh, encouraged by the employment statistics that we've been publishing. Uh, the, the ability to pay is the federal loan system. Uh, we charge rates that, that very few people could finance on their own. And if they were to go out in the private market to obtain these loans, uh, th they would uh, have faced quite uh, severe uh, interest rates, given the high rate of uh, uh, unlikeliness to repay. Uh, 
Now uh, let me talk about what's going on with law schools because there is a, a market correction going on and, uh, and, and this has significant implications on what, what type of, what actions might be taken going forward. The, the chart uh, charts uh, in the in unemployment rate that's in the blue line against the number of applicants to law school. So they're on different uh, the metrics. Right? The left is the unemployment rate. The right is the uh, sorry, sorry. The left is the number of applicants. The right is the unemployment rate. So here's the basic point: as the unemployment rate rises, the blue line going up, law school applicants, the number of applicants goes up, the red line going up. As the unemployment rate falls, the number of applicants to law school falls. Unemployment goes up. Num number of applicants go up. This is from 1990. So it's a fairly consistent pattern. Uh, and it makes sense. We often say this in law school. Bad economy, good for law schools. Why? Because people graduate from college, don't know what else to do, or maybe have gotten laid off, and they think that going to law school for three years, retooling, getting, getting a new credential will create different set of opportunities coming out. This, this suggests that there's something to that uh, uh, belief that we've had in law schools. Uh, until recently, and that's the key part I want you to look at. If you look at the far right hand of the chart, the shot, uh, the, the blue line going straight up is the Great Recession, the one that we've been muddling through since 2007, 2008. But if you look at the number of applicants, we went up just very slightly. Uh, in, this, in 2010, the, we had the highest number of LSAT uh, test takers ever, 170,000, 20,000 higher than the year before. But law schools reaped only 1,300 additional applicants. So a lot of people were taking the LSAT, but they haven't been coming. Uh, so another way of looking at this chart is the last peak in the number of applicants to law school was in 2004, when we had 100,000. And since that time, with the exception of a slight bump up in 2009 and 10, we've had a fairly steady decline in the number of applicants to law school. And that decline now is continuing with a vengeance. So I'll get to those last numbers. And this, is, uh, this changes everything. Uh, the, what the chart shows are the number of applicants uh, for the past three years. So the red line was a, was a fall. That was uh, 2011. That was down from the year before. The green line is 2012. That was down from 2011. And now the blue line is 2013. It looks like it's, we only have a few, but about 40% of our applicants come in by this time. So I'll, I'll give you the bottom line of what this, what this chart shows. Again, I'm comparing 100,000 applicants in 2004. That was our last peak. In 2010, we had 88,000 applicants. In 2011, uh, sorry, 88,000, yes. In 2011, we had 78,000 applicants to law school. In 2012, we had 68,000. And we're on a projected, uh, our, traject our current trajectory suggests that we'll have between 52,000 and 53,000 applicants to law school this coming year. Now, to put this number in perspective, you need, uh, let me give you some other background figures. We've accepted more than, than 55,000 people to law school every year in the past 10 years. So we'll, this year, we'll have fewer students than we've accepted. In addition, you can't take everyone uh, who applies. I mean, we have to turn down some people. In, in 2004, only about half of the people who applied got in. For the class of 2012, we don't have final numbers yet, but I'm guessing that somewhere around 
75 to 80 percent of the people who applied got in. So eight out of 10 people who applied got into law school as opposed to five out of 10. And what you should see this, uh, the immediate implication of this is the dec declining quality of the pool uh, of students that we're taking in. Uh, now, for 2013, those numbers don't work anymore. Uh, even if we were to take in 85% of the students who apply, 80% of the students, uh, every year, about 10,000 or so of the students who are accepted to law school choose not to enroll. So we, we won't be able to get 45,000. Uh, so who knows what it'll come down to. But I'll just say this. Based on past numbers, the, the uh, class of 2013, the entering class, should be somewhere in the high 30,000 student range, 39,000. And this is with dramatic squeezing on the part of law schools. Now, we've not had 30,000 students enroll in law school since the 1970s, 38,000, 39,000, in the 78, 1978, 1979. Uh, and we now have about 40 more law schools than we did in the 1970s. Now, what that says is we're in for uh, dramatic uh, uh, events going forward, including uh, potentially the failure of law schools. What it also says is that we'll do whatever we can to keep our doors open, and a part of that uh, involves taking in students of a lower quality. I only have a couple more minutes, so let me summarize just what I think are the key things to think about going forward. Uh, as Walter indicated, the book talks about various contributions to the current situation, including our, our system of regulation, our competition over U.S. news, the, real, the, uh, the, the culture among academics that raises scholarship as, as the most important value we have above all else. All of those things matter, but I think the crucial thing going forward has to do with the federal, uh, federal loan system. The federal loan system has no restraints attached to it. So a student who applies at a law school, by the way, the, the, the forms are actually filled out by the law school admissions office and then sent to the federal government. They, the federal government will provide the entire cost of enrollment. That includes tuition as well as living expenses, estimates provided uh, by the law schools. Uh, as long as there are no caps on the amount that you can borrow, law schools have been able to raise their tuition every year, given insofar as students were still willing to come uh, so this is one piece of it. And no determination is made about the likelihood of repayment. So a student who, who attends Whittier or Cal Western or Thomas Jefferson with those debt levels and those employment results is treated exactly the same way a student who enters Harvard is treated. Uh, now, obviously, if they were on a, on a, on a, in a loan system in which pay, uh, loan eligibility was determined as a function of ability to repay, this would be a dramatically such different situation. Let me add one final piece to this, and I'll sit down, and that is the implications of IBR. IBR is now being pitched. IBR was created, in my view, for good reasons, and that is to help uh, graduates in financial distress avoid default. Uh, the problem, of it, and this is how it was envisioned, and this is how it was sold. So someone who's drowning under their debt is thrown a lifesaver. Law schools are in a very different situation because law school admissions offices are now pitching IBR and pitching it in this way. Don't worry about the debt because if it doesn't work out, you don't have to repay it. Your, your monthly payments are capped, and at the end of 20 years, the amount is, uh, is uh, forgiven. Now, the problem with that is instead of saving one who's drowning in, in risky financial waters, what, what we're doing in es essence is encouraging them to jump in. Uh, and that, that wasn't the idea uh, of the program. And to the extent that IBR operates in this way, it potentially 
keeps in existence law schools that might otherwise go under if students were rational in making a pure economic decision about, about wh what the outcome would be uh, when they got out. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. I, I first uh, want to thank Walter for inviting me to comment today. Uh, and to put, uh, at least my goal is going to be to put the law school situation in greater higher education context. I think you'll see that the problems in law school aren't all that different from a lot of the big problems plaguing all of higher ed. Uh, I want to thank Professor Tamanaha for his really terrific book as well as Professor Campos, both very insightful kind of insider books that are very important. Uh, finally, I want to give myself a big round of applause for never having gone to law school. Uh, if you want to applaud, really, no, it's the least I could do. Uh, now, now to start a little bit of the context. As bad as the law school industry is, and this is important, I use the term industry, because that's what law school is. That's what higher education is. They are both money-making, dare I say, profit-making industries. And we have a tendency to act like that's not the case, but when we see the behavior, we see that that is the case. If you want numbers for this, for higher education broadly, we have a policy analysis called Federal Higher Education Policy and the Profitable Nonprofits, and you can start to see these numbers. So I'm not just saying this because, you know, I'm trying to smear them, I'm just going to throw it out there. We've actually analyzed this. And I think you see a lot of this, in particular in both these, these books, and in Professor Tamanaha's book in particular, that really lays out a lot of the economics of it. There is one major way I think that law schools, it seems, are different from all of higher education. I'm going to save that toward the end. But aside from that major difference, they both seem to suffer, all of higher ed and law schools, from ultimately the same fundamental problem, which is you have self-interested professors and administrators. And there's nothing wrong with that. That just means they are normal human beings. But they're getting paid by people who are using someone else's money, ultimately, to make that payment. And that is a huge problem. Now, of course, the first objection that I'm likely to hear and that I often hear is that professors and college administrators are not self-interested. At least, glad somebody laughed at that, uh, they're not at least self-interested, like, you know, like icky businessmen and you're kind of these Gordon Gecko types who we always imagine live in corporate offices. Well, it turns out that that is largely hogwash. Again, Professor Tamanaha's book really lays this out for law professors who, who make this argument, that not only did they get actually pretty good pay relative to even some of the best paid lawyers in private practice, but they get huge autonomy. And not only do they get autonomy, they get to do stuff that's really kind of fun. And that in itself is a big reward. The fact is, Unless you spend more on some job than you bring in that job, you are making a financial profit. That's basically what a profit is. And then if you get all sorts of psychological benefits from it, that makes your profit that much bigger. And that's a lot of being a professor, either in law school or in colleges generally. Uh, next, there's Professor Tamanaha's observation that professors are focused largely on academic issues, not on providing the sort of professional training that many people go to law school to attain. But again, that's not really unique to law schools, other than you know, law schools are a professional school. Some you know, college of liberal arts are not strictly professional schools, although if you look at most of the promotional material for most colleges of liberal arts, one of the first things they'll say is people with liberal arts backgrounds are in heavy demand by employers. So even these schools, 
will, will tell you that they're going to prepare you for a work life, but often that is not the focus of the schools. Now, part of this is a philosophical divide about what education is supposed to be, and this goes back centuries. It's not just higher ed. It's not just law schools. Some people really think it should be about the advancement of human knowledge and the betterment of people, and others think, no, it should be about obtaining practical, necessary skills. But naturally, the professoriate is going to be most interested in the academic side. For one reason, that's what butters their bread. And then it's not surprising when we look across higher education that the students that get the most attention from professors tend to be those who want to become professors themselves. Essentially, you're grooming protégés. And that, that shouldn't be surprising. Again, that's pretty normal, that you would be, you know, as a professor, most interested in working with people who want to be like you. There is also, though, a, a, and this I think is more dangerous, an entire cottage industry of books from academics to crime, the corporatization, that's the term, it's often used, of higher education. Uh, and, and what they don't like is that this tends to be kind of concrete and wants to measure, well, what, what are the costs and what are the benefits we're getting? And this tends to trouble a lot of academics who see it as sort of pedestrian, kind of, kind of unpleasant bean counting. Um, and, and of course, they don't like that. One is because maybe philosophically they think, well, you can't put a price on human knowledge and the advancement of human knowledge. And the other thing might be very self-interested, which is many professors are in departments, this generally doesn't apply to law schools, but in departments that get big intra-university subsidies. And if we're someone to say, well, are you bringing in enough money to justify your continued existence, they'd have to say no, and they might go out of business. Uh, and then I think you see across higher education this notion that, or this, just shunting the side, the reality that we live in a world of finite resources. And we've really got to put a price on everything because there are billions of competing goods and needs and desires. And unless you have a price on them, you don't know the relative value to everything else. And so, you know, higher education is where we get sort of the pejorative term ivory tower. It wants to be sealed off from reality. Um, Law schools and higher ed broadly, they also love to, to traffic in this notion that, that we've heard uh, that if you get a degree but you don't get a, a, you know, a job in whatever that area is, don't worry. The degree itself, it's, it'll provide you all sorts of pay. Um, we hear this as undergrads where you hear typically a college graduate can expect to make $1 million more over his or her lifetime than someone with just a high school diploma. You hear that all the time. There are numerous, numerous major problems with this. $1 million is the most generous possible average figure you can come up with. Roughly half of people who go to college don't even finish, so they're not competing for that $1 million. And many who do finish aren't average. And we certainly see this in the law school data that we just saw. You know, somebody leaving with a psychology degree after spending six years in all-comers university is probably not going to make a million dollars more or even close to it over their lifetime. They're going to have a lot of trouble paying off their debts. Now, Professor Komposak calls this the myth of the versatile law degree when it comes to law school. The idea that this degree pays off in any number of ways. Don't worry about it. Everybody who goes will get this big benefit. We hear this in higher education as a whole, and there's just one anecdote that really drove it home for me. There's a Georgetown University has a center on education in the workforce, and they put out a report saying, look, generally going to college pays off. And the New York Times wrote an article about it, and they had this graphic that said, look, even if you don't do something that your degree was for, you get this big earning premium from a degree. And we see that dishwashers 
If you're a dishwasher who's gone to college, you make a lot more than the dishwasher who didn't go to college. And we're supposed to say, well, that means college is really valuable because my degree in whatever clearly has application to being a dishwasher. And we tend to just ignore the fact, well, maybe somebody who gets the degree also might show up to work on time. The degree isn't what's making you a more valuable dishwasher. Now, there are a couple of things I just want to push on, back on. Not a lot, but just a little bit uh, on this book. One is, and I see this throughout higher education, the abuse of US news and their rankings, the, the sort of scapegoating US news. Now, that said, the US news rankings are very superficial. The idea that the number 99th ranked college is really necessarily better than the 100th ranked is, of course, silly. And it's foolish to think that we can, we can scientifically put them in sort of order. The rankings for both law schools and undergrad schools are based so much on inputs. You know, how much do you spend per pupil and not on output? So if you spend a billion dollars pushing out illiterate kids, you're a good school as opposed to the one where everybody gets a great job and you spend $10 on them. But are they totally worthless is what I'd like to know. Isn't there at least some sort of signaling that comes from somebody applying to you as an employer saying, I went to the fifth ranked law school. And that says, maybe they didn't learn much about contracts or whatever it is we do here. But we know that that tells us something about the quality of that person. They probably did well as an undergraduate. They might interview well and things like that. It's an absurdly expensive way to signal. I'm not saying that it makes sense. But doesn't US News perhaps have some value? And then uh, Professor Tamanahat, if I'm reading this right, um, is, is kind of upset about tuition discounting. And there is a bit of a, a shell game here, where basically a really good student gets accepted to law school, and they get aid. And that aid is typically coming from the tuition paid by someone who's not as good a student who gets accepted at law school. To me, everybody's benefiting from that. The best student is paying less. The school gets to say we have some of the best students. And the one that was maybe on the margins still gets to say they've gone to that school. So is that totally a bad thing? Now, these are, again, minor. There's lots of area to, to discuss about this. But I thought I'd push back on it. My main concern, though, and, and Professor Tamanaha talked about it, is applicable to law schools and all of higher ed. And that is that there's, frankly, little question that the cause, or not a cause, but a major driver of rampant hyperinflation throughout higher education is that people pay with someone else's money. And that money ultimately comes, for the most part, from the federal government. Now, in law schools, it's a little different. Most of it is loan money. If you talk about undergrads, there are Pell Grants and other areas. And, and so you do have to pay back, in theory, loan money, except for income-based repayment, except if you go into public interest, and things like that. But ultimately, it is a third-party payer problem, which is you are willing to pay more if someone else is making sure you get that money, and if you think you won't have to repay it in particular. And ultimately, schools can increase their prices to whatever they think people can pay, and the federal government ensures you can pay almost any price. Now, my, again, my, my bigger, maybe my biggest pushback on Professor Tamanaha's book is that why not just call for the elimination of federal aid as opposed to you, you call for capping what a school can get? And I think that would be certainly better than where we, where we are. But why not let the private market save students from themselves? A private lender is going to benefit if they give money to somebody who is going to benefit from going to a law school. 
So they have a natural interest to say, if you aren't going to benefit, I won't give you the money. Again, everybody comes out ahead in that. Now, the concern, of course, would be that low-income kids might not, or students might not be able to get a loan. But the reality is, it is in my interest as a, law, as a lender to give to somebody, whether they're low-income or not, who has demonstrated ability to succeed as a lawyer. Again, they will profit and I will profit. And so I wonder if that is an option at least worth considering. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk about was the one area that, that law school does seem very different from the rest of higher ed, and that is the accreditation problem. Now, all of higher ed has an accreditation problem. We go, schools go through ridiculous hoops of saying we have X billion books in our library. Most don't have billions, but millions. And then if you have enough inputs, again, you get accredited. But schools, at least for the most part, can actually go to different accreditors. Um, and you can choose as a student from a community college, a big state research school, a liberal arts college. But it seems that if you want to go to law school, you have only one choice, an ABA accredited school where you have to do a three-year academically oriented program. And that is a huge constraint on, on trade. And that seems an especially big problem in law schools versus the rest of universities. So, now, on the whole, I think the greatest value of Professor Tamanaha's book, as well as Professor Campos, which I enjoyed a great deal, isn't necessarily what they expose about greedy law schools, although that is huge, but they offer such frank, really insider revelations about the reality of supposedly selfless higher education that is run by people as selfish as all the rest of us, not more so, but the same, that they often aren't doing what's best for the students they say they exist for, and that they survive ultimately on money taken from you and me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a great number of things to say, which I'll say very quickly. I want to leave uh, as much time for discussion uh, as possible. Um, I think Brian's book is an enormously important contribution. Uh, and I think that the numbers that he uh, discussed are numbers that were being ignored almost completely a year ago, and especially two years ago, that are now being talked about all over legal academia. And I think one big reason for that is, of course, because of Brian's book. Another big reason, of course, is because uh, the market is collapsing. And uh, therefore, a sort of harsh form of reality therapy is being brought to bear on law schools. Uh, I want to say a couple of things about those numbers uh, before moving on to a more uh, general critique. First of all, unfortunately, I think they're, they're, uh, they're much too optimistic, really, in describing the actual situation. Uh, and here's why. Uh, the numbers are highly unreliable. Uh, they, are, they are, first of all, they are reported by law schools, um, <laughs> which, I mean, I'm not being facetious. I mean, there's, there's no reason to think that these numbers are being reported in a particularly accurate way. And let me give you an example of, of, of how dubious this data is. If you look at the uh, data R, I should say, if you look at the, at the, at the uh, reporting forms that are sent to, uh, the, to NALP and to the ABA, um, they are far too complete in regard to the information that they provide. Anybody who's done any kind of empirical research knows that one of the biggest problems that you have is gaps in your, in, in your information. There's no gaps in the NALP and ABA information. So for example, if you look at the data, they, they purport to capture uh, all of the information in regard to, for example, whether a, uh, a job holder has a full-time job or a job that is long-term as opposed to short-term. There's nothing in the data for unknown. 
in regard to those uh, in, in regard to those uh, uh, variables, which are crucially important. So when when Brian is reporting that 55% of the class of uh, 2011 had uh, full-time jobs. The way that that number is produced is in the following fashion. Law schools report that a graduate has a full-time job uh, that they know has a job unless they have been given a reason to think otherwise. So in other words, uh, many graduates don't turn in any uh, uh, information about their employment situation to law schools at all. And law schools go on Facebook and LinkedIn and, and, and to hunt around. Uh, for their, uh, their graduates' uh, job situation. And if they find uh, information on there, they report that information on the basis of a methodology which assumes a best case scenario unless they are given reason to believe otherwise by the student, or graduate, I should say. So even without getting into actual fraud, of which there clearly have been some, um, some instances, uh, the numbers uh, that are being reported are actually, uh, I think, considerably better than the real numbers. And here I want to emphasize one point in particular, because Brian, uh, you know, his book does a wonderful job of laying all this out. Uh, I don't think that he uh, emphasizes quite enough uh, what the bimodal salary distribution really means. Right? The bimodal salary distribution is very easily interpreted by potential law students in the following way. They think, well, uh, some people, not all that many and fewer than in the past, got those $160,000 a year jobs with the big law firms. But unfortunately, there's this huge group of people making forty dollars to $65,000 a year. That's what the bimodal distribution would seem to indicate. Uh, that's true, but what's, uh, what's underneath those numbers is that only 42% of 2011 law graduates had their salaries reported. 69% of those who had full-time jobs had their salaries reported, but since the number who had full-time jobs was considerably lower than 100%, you're only look, looking at 42% of, 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 uh, of law graduates. That forty dollars to $65,000 salary um, bump in the bimodal distribution are the people who actually have real jobs. What about the 58% whose salaries are not reported at all? A large number of those salaries are zero. A large number of those salaries are actually negative. There are now people who are charging recent law school applicants to observe them um, practicing law. I'm, you think I'm making this up. I'm not making this up. It's, a, it's an apprenticeship system going back to the Middle Ages, but it's a lot worse than the Middle Ages, because in the Middle Ages, your master had to provide you with like food and shelter. Right? But, but lawyers aren't required to do that. They can say, uh, just if you, if you uh, if, if uh, you come to my office and you watch uh, what I do, you shadow me, um, and um, uh, I will, uh, I'll let you do that if you pay me a fee. So that's the next step. The next step is, is the less than zero salary. Right? That's where we're heading. Um, so the situation is, is, uh, is catastrophic. Now, let me talk a little bit about market failure. This being the Cato Institute, naturally, we'd like to talk about uh, markets and here I think we the, both of the right the right and the left um, critiques of markets are quite uh, salient. The uh, uh, the right critique of um, of what's going on with law schools uh, couldn't be more obvious and it's been made made very well. It's made very well by by Neil. Uh, if you subsidize something, you get more of it. Right? If you have uh, actu if you have loans that have no actuarial controls, a lot of those loans are going to fail. Uh, uh, Neil referenced the, the, the uh, Walter actually uh, referenced the, the subprime mortgage uh, crisis, and it's actually an excellent analogy right, uh, in, in all sorts of ways. 
Um, so yeah, it's absolutely predictable that if you lend money to people who have no reasonable prospect of paying it back, those people aren't going to pay the money back. But there's a couple of you know, economic aphorisms that I like to quote in regard to this. One is uh, Herbert Stein, who used to be the head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors uh, back in the, in the 70s, uh, who, who said that if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Another sort of Zen-like saying is uh, by another economist whose name escapes me at the moment, but he says, debts that cannot be repaid won't be. And that's the situation with legal education. Um, so the, the, the sort of conservative critique of, uh, of, 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 of subsidization distortion here is very germane. Um, also germane, I think, is the conservative critique of regulatory capture. The notion that the ABA section of legal education is regulating law schools is just, is just a very mordant joke, basically. Because the people who are running that section are literally the deans of the bottom feeder law schools of those schools that, that Brian listed with enormous debts uh, and no job prospects. Those are the people who are deciding whether law schools are being run in the appropriate fashion. Some of you may have seen a story in the Boston Globe this weekend, which I would encourage you to read if you don't, that quotes both Brian and myself, that looks at the dean of a New England law school who, gets, who pays himself $867,000 a year, uh, which is more than the president of Harvard University uh, and more than any other dean in the country, as far as we know, at a law school which has catastrophically bad employment outcomes. He was the president of the section of legal education of the ABA last year. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that boxes don't do very good jobs of guarding hen houses, basically. Um, now, I'd like to quote a couple of people who probably aren't quoted in this room too often. Uh, one is Upton Sinclair, who said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on his not understanding it. So not surprisingly, it is very difficult to get legal academics to understand that they are functioning within a economic model that simply does not work, or rather only works with massive subsidization on both ends, uh, in the form of student loans on the front end and on the, in the form of income-based repayment on the back end. People don't uh, want to understand that, and so they don't understand that, and there's been tremendous resistance to seeing that it is absolutely preposterous to charge uh, three times more than it costs to go to Harvard Law School in inflation-adjusted terms uh, 30 years ago to go to uh, very low-rank law schools where 35 and 25 and 17 percent of the graduates are getting any kind of job that could even be loosely described as a lawyer job, let alone a job that actually pays a sufficient sum to service the debts that these students are acquiring, which they're, they're not getting any jobs like that. And the second quote is from uh, George Orwell, um, who said that, uh, uh, he said, politics in imperialist countries, left-wing politics, I should say, in imperialist countries um, are uh, always somewhat of a sham because uh, they consist of people arguing for outcomes that they don't really want to happen. And I think that's true in the context of legal academia, and I think it's a critique that could be made, uh, perhaps, of Brian and myself. I shouldn't speak for Brian. That's really actually very rude. But it's a kind of true of myself. I mean, what I'm arguing for is that I should get paid a lot less to work a lot harder. Now, do I really want that to happen? Of course I don't want that to happen. Right? 
Maybe Brian does want that to happen. He, you know, <laughs> maybe a purer soul than me. I don't know. But the, the mathematics here could not be clear. Law school costs way too much. And the only way to bring those costs down uh, is to spend a lot less money. And the only way to bring about that result, of course, is to change the way that law school in, in particular and higher education in general um, is financed. I mean, let, let me repeat these numbers. In 2011 dollars, it cost $15,000 a year to go to Harvard Law School in 1981. Today, it not only costs $51,000 a year to go to Harvard Law School, it costs $42,000 a year to go to New England Law School, which has employment numbers that you know, bear absolutely zero relationships, none whatsoever, to that cost. So we need to bring down the cost of going to law school radically, and we need to cut the number of people who are graduating from law school radically. Basically, 100 of the 200 outstanding, I mean, there might be like 201, or as of this morning, maybe there's two or three more, ABA-accredited law schools. Half of those law schools should not exist. There's absolutely no justification for their existence. Um, that's a hard truth. Now, let me just say one other thing about the, uh, a kind of left critique of, uh, of, 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 how, of how the market uh, isn't necessarily going to fix all this, although we are seeing some market adjustment. And right now, we are having a really kind of interesting experiment where we're saying, how much is improving transparency actually going to uh, correct the market? We see that it's correcting somewhat. Right? But there's, if, we, if we look at behavioral psychology, there are all kinds of reasons to believe that lots and lots of people who shouldn't go to law school are going to keep going to law school if they are given the opportunity to do so. Why? Because of optimism bias. I call this in, in my book, I call this special snowflake syndrome. Right? Uh, because, you know, kids today, right, you're all, you know, you're, you raise all your kids, right, to think they're special, they're super special, they're, like, uniquely talented and gifted. I, I, on the site, uh, what uh, stuff white people like, which I highly recommend, it's, it's noted that uh, the last non-gifted white child in America was born in Reseda, California in 1962. All of the others, all the others are gifted, right, gifted and talented, right? So there's optimism bias, and then there's confirmation bias which is essentially we pay attention to information that we like and we ignore information uh, that we don't like. Right? So all the time I hear from people who say, well, it's true that the employment statistics superficially look really terrible for that school, but what about this guy over here who uh, went to that school and is now partner at this fancy firm uh, the most ridiculous example of this that, I, that I've actually seen put forward by a law school dean, which is really saying something uh, recently, which is the dean of uh, Duquesne Law School in Pittsburgh, pointed out that the president of the Pittsburgh Steelers was a Duquesne Law School graduate, um, which is you know, an argument about the versatility of a law degree, right? I don't know if I have any, any Pittsburgh Steelers fans in the uh, audience. Uh, do we have any, any Steelers fans? No, 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 but no sports fans probably, right? But anyways, the president of the Pittsburgh Steelers is a gentleman named Dan Rooney, who is the grandson of the founder of the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> probably has a little bit more to do with his job than his Duquesne law degree, just guessing here. Right. Um, well, I'm almost out of time, so I'm just going to say uh, one more thing, uh, which is that uh, what law schools need is genuinely radical reform. Tweaking at the margins 
that's not going to work. In fact, higher education as a whole in this country needs very, very serious reforms. I think law schools are sort of the canary in the coal mine in this, in this regard, right? We're sort of the worst <laughs> from the numbers that, that Brian showed. Our costs bear no relationship to our outcomes. And uh, that has to change. And uh, legal education is dysfunctional for all kinds of reasons that I can't get into at the moment. But we could just go back to charging what Harvard Law School was charging in 1981 uh, and go a long, long ways towards fixing this problem. And frankly, I think Harvard Law School in 1981 was probably turning out reasonably competent lawyers. <laughs> Actually, they weren't. But what they, were <laughs> but what they were turning out were people who could be turned into reasonably competent lawyers. Right? And that worked out OK more or less. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. In just a moment, we will be turning it over to you for questions. Uh, <clears throat> first, though, a uh, couple of uh, loose ends. I forgot to plug uh, Professor Campos's excellent book, uh, Don't Go to Law School Unless. Uh, <clears throat> You will find lots of practical wisdom there uh, if you or someone you care about is thinking of jumping over this particular cliff. Um, I wanted to ask the speakers first if they wanted to re react to what each other uh, had said before we go any further. Any comments or reactions? No? OK. <clears throat> Let me use the moderator's prerogative then to ask a question or two myself about things that we either didn't touch on or only touched on a little bit. Uh, in the main presentations. One is accreditation. And Cato, of course, has particular types of views about uh, alleged market failure, which is that if you uh, lift up the lid on an alleged market failure, you very often find a government failure uh, underneath it. And it seems to me that way with some of the market failures we've been talking about uh, this afternoon. Uh, nearly all states use accreditation uh, in a way that makes it more or less impossible to become a lawyer unless you go to an accredited ABA law school. Uh, the, uh, only a bit has been said about the workings of ABA accreditation, but uh, believe me, there is a whole book to be written just about that. Uh, the um, uh, ABA's panel consists basically of various unnecessary costs sitting around a table um, uh, pa passing resolutions. That, you know, that, I think it was one of the great law and economics professors who would greet his uh, first year class uh, every year by saying, uh, gre greetings, future transaction costs. And, <laughs> I think that that's somehow the, the way in which they must convene an ABA accreditation panel. Uh, you've got the person representing the libraries who uh, is there to ensure that law schools do not do what all large law firms have done as far as computerizing away uh, his constituency's jobs. You've got the person from clinical legal education who is there to ensure that every single school has to incorporate a large dose of clinical education. And on through, you know, everyone represents the third year, the you know, big way of saving costs would be to eliminate uh, the third year or turn it into an apprenticeship. And so they're all united in preventing that from happening. So if you could say a, a couple words more about accreditation, but also about one of the bits of legal background that we didn't mention, which is that unlike the mortgages that Countrywide was so glad to um, uh, sell you a few years ago, uh, educational debts are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. My own proposal is to let them foreclose on the degree and take it back. Um, <laughs> but, but then they have to forgive the money. Um, any comments on either of those? I'll just talk about accreditation. In the book, I begin with uh, a, a chapter on accreditation, and it starts with the fact that in 1995, law schools, the ABA section on legal education, was subject to a civil antitrust suit by the Department of Justice 
basically for using accreditation standards to ratchet up our salaries and, and down our teaching loads. So we do have a history of doing this, uh, and uh, we, we pled nolo contendere to the charges. Uh, so we do have a history of doing this, and indeed there are components to the accreditation standards that inure to the benefits uh, of professors, and I suggest that many of these provisions should be stripped out. Provisions focusing on, for example, uh, tenure for academics, uh, on providing uh, support for research and, and leaves, the provisions related to the library. The core uh, solution, if there is one, uh, to this situation that I proposed was allowing greater differentiation, and the only way to do that would be to change the ABA standards. Uh, the likelihood of that happening, I think, is not good. Uh, although the current decline in applicants might change that situation because now law schools faced with, faced with closure might themselves want to be freed of some of these requirements. Although in the past the requirements provided better conditions for us. If the question is survival or not, uh, I assume most places would choose survival. Uh, now, I, I want to add something on top of that because it, accreditation really focuses on the bottom. I think a lot of the schools have these add-on costs simply because the culture of legal academia is developed in a way such that all of these are expectations that we have. Uh, so changing accreditation, in my view, won't be sufficient. It, it, we have to actually have a new set of values about what it is we're there for, uh, and, and professors have to embrace these values, uh, many of which uh, would require that we teach more and, and write less. Uh, as Paul said, there's a component of self-interest here that's difficult to swallow for, for people in our position. Uh, and that's, that change won't come from changes in the ABA, uh, ABA requirements. And let me just add one last piece. The ABA is, uh, gets uh, is delegated authority to serve as an accrediting body from the DOE. So the DOE has, a, has the ability to influence some of these actions. But the other key is that state supreme courts are the ones that give ABA this power. And, they, and they've done it by adopting, 45 states have adopted the requirement that you can't sit for the bar if you don't graduate from an ABA accredited school. Without that, the ABA would be like good housekeeping seal of approval. It wouldn't have any other genuine impact in restricting people. So another way of, of dealing with this is to have state supreme courts actually look into the situation and ask, is this serving the interests of the legal profession and of the public to give ABA schools this, uh, this cartel-like control over who gets to sit for the bar? I don't know what the likelihood of that is, uh, uh, but I actually think that might be a more promising avenue because the ABA section on legal education, uh, as Paul said, is po uh, populated by us. Yeah, uh, just to put that in context again, that seems to be, to me, the big difference between all of higher ed accreditation and law school is you're kind of locked into this three-year academic uh, um, model because you have to have it to sit for the bar. For most colleges, it's you have to get some sort of accreditation so you can, so the Department of Education says you're okay to give student aid to, or to give to your students who then take it to you. Um, and we're starting to see schools talk, you know, working on getting around that, or new models get around that by these massive online courses and things like that, where it could be so cheap, you wouldn't need that, that Title IV money, that, that federal money, but that wouldn't help law schools if you've got to go to an ABA accredited place to sit for the bar. So I think that's what makes it so much more dangerous in law school than higher ed broadly. Yeah, I just want to mention that I actually agree uh, with Walter completely, assuming he's not being facetious, that you really ought to be able to um, 
to uh, declare bankruptcy uh, and discharge your uh, educational loans uh, in return for maybe uh, disqualifying yourself, for example, from being able to sit for the bar. Uh, the fact of the matter is that for a huge number of people currently graduating from law school, their uh, law schools have negative value, uh, their law degrees, I should say, uh, and uh, they have negative value without regard to the direct and indirect costs of having acquired those. So when I'm just talking about net negative net present value, I'm talking about the fact that they would be better off if they didn't have the degree because the degree gets in the way of them being able to get a job that they would otherwise be able to get if they didn't have the law degree. This is becoming very common among graduates, especially of lower rank law schools, because the law degree is stigmatizing. Because employers, well, people don't like lawyers to begin with, right? But also, and, and with some reason, right? I mean, they think, uh, okay, th is this person going to sue me? Uh, this is an argumentative person who uh, just acts as if they know a bunch of stuff, but they really don't know anything. Uh, I was just talking to a person teach, uh, who uh, works at a, at a big government agency, and she was explaining to me that the, their compliance department won't hire lawyers, right? Even though... Um, the 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 then uh, they won't hire you know law graduates either, um, and the reason is because the woman who runs the compliance department who has uh, you know has a BA just finds it extremely obnoxious that these people who don't really know nearly as much as she does uh, come in with uh, the wrong kind of attitude in her view in regard uh, to uh, uh, their relative position within the organization. So she won't consider people with law degrees, and I've run into this again and again in recent months. People writing to me and saying. Only when I took my law degree off my resume and came up with some clever explanation for the three-year gap in my life <laughs> was I able to actually start getting the kind of jobs that I could have gotten before I went to law school. Right? So under those circumstances, I think it makes all kinds of sense to say, let me discharge this debt and I'll just give you this thing back. Can I just say one thing about bankruptcy, because this is a big thing in higher ed. The problem with it is, especially if these are federal loans, is the people who end up paying for it then are federal taxpayers who had no say in the matter to begin with. It strikes me that more important would be to prevent these people from getting the loans to begin with. And that is really the solution to get there, is to move toward truly private lending, where the lender has a lot at stake right off the bat by saying, I should lend only people who can pay it off. Then if you want to say private loans dischargeable in bankruptcy, which currently they are not, then that's fine because both parties know what they're getting into. But it troubles me when we talk about uh, letting people discharge federal loans in bankruptcy because the people who end up losing them are, are the innocents. Well, one of the morals that I draw is that if you want to have a really successful uh, conspiracy and re restraint of trade, it helps to employ all of the antitrust professors at your institutions. <laughs> um, now it is your turn. Um, I would ask you to follow Cato's rules on these things. Uh, please wait to be called on. Uh, <clears throat> the, after you are called on, wait, because one of our uh, helpful people will bring you a microphone. Uh, when the microphone is in front of you, uh, please um, <clears throat> announce your name and, if uh, relevant, affiliation. Uh, we will be breaking for lunch afterward, uh, and I'll give you directions when we're done with questions. So, um, yes, uh, by the uh, back door there. Hi, I'm Megan McCardle. Oh. <laughs> uh, Megan McCardle of Newsweek Daily Beast. Um, I'd actually wondered 
if you could talk a little bit about what the role of private lending is in this, because certainly uh, as one of the people who graduated from an expensive professional school and then got a job that paid $40,000 a year, a big part of my debt was private loans because the federal government would only lend you $18,000 a year uh, to go to business school. I don't know if it's different for law school, but how much of a role is the private debt market with that uh, freedom from bankruptcy that we've given them playing in the inflation of this debt, or is it entirely a, a, a public debt problem? Well, in recent years, uh, students come entirely funded by the federal government. The Graduate Plus Supplement uh, it has essentially no limits. Uh, so the private lenders are out of the of the law school market, but these but we have prior past graduates who actually have private and public loans, so they're in a different situation. And it, and when we talk about bankruptcy as a possible solution, I think we have to make some distinctions between past and going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, but but to answer your question specifically, the the money is all so all of those debt figures that you looked at those that's just all federal money. Yeah, and uh, private loans, uh, just across higher ed, they had a small spike for about three or four years, I think peaked in about 2007, before maybe around 2001, give or take a few years, there was almost no private lending. It spiked a little when there were caps on, on federal lending, and now it's essentially gone back to zero. There's still some truly private lending, but not very much. So it was almost a flash in the pan across higher ed. Yes, uh, in the center. Uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I have no affiliation. Um, I just wanted to ask if, if people up there think that there's really an elephant in the room question, and that is, why do so many people want to go to law school why are there so many attorneys in this country? And I, I'm suggesting here that it's not just that they want to, it's not just, it can't be answered just by saying they, they go to law school because they want to make a lot of money. And in, in my view, having been a, uh, gone to law school in the early 70s, we, we kind of viewed it as a continue, law school as a continuation of letters and science education. And it was that kind of mentality that's, that, that was out there and probably still is out there with a lot of people. Yeah, a combination of uh, good grades and too afraid of blood to become a, a doctor um, <laughs> was, was often the key in the early 70s, I, I remember. But um, <clears throat> I have written a bit on the special status of lawyers in American society and certainly the um, much about the way in which our legal system works encourages people to think, often correctly, that they simply will be able to throw their weight around in certain ways that um, they will um, have a certain kind of not necessarily monetary power from being a lawyer that uh, 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 would not stand out as much being a lawyer in a, in a different country. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say something just quickly about that. Uh, I think that one of the keys to understanding why so many people go to law school um, is the uh, very false uh, image of what it means to be a lawyer that people are presented with in the mass media. Uh, essentially, the, the picture of being a lawyer is one that you are a highly compensated, uh, intellectually gifted person who is doing uh, in, uh, difficult and socially valuable work. And, you know, people are laughing, probably the lawyers in the audience, <laughs> right, because... 
every single one of those characteristics uh, does not fit uh, the experience of many people who practice law, let alone people who try to get into the, the business and aren't able to do so. And here I want to mention something which I think has played a crucial role in the enormously dysfunctional structure of the current uh, 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 market for law degrees, which is the problem of stigmatization. I think the problem is that many people have not actually uh, expressed in whatever way they could their, their, their situation uh, after having gone to law school because of the stigma that they have internalized because they fail to, because they have what the sociologist Irvin Goffman calls a spoiled identity. You know, in other words, they have failed to, to actually meet the cultural paradigm of what it means to be an attorney and that stigma that they uh, feel uh, leads them to, in uh, Goffman's terminology, to either pass, that is to pretend that they are, you know, they, that they don't have a spoiled identity, to cover, to minimize the uh, discomfort that the normals, you know, the successful lawyers uh, feel uh, in the presence of the, of the stigmatized, uh, and now actually increasingly to flaunt, which is to go out there and you know, throw your stigmatized identity in, in people's faces, which is what the blogs that Brian has talked about um, and uh, as, as sort of raising his consciousness uh, have done. So I think this, you know, the, the false construct of what it means to be a lawyer in our culture, which law schools very carefully cultivate, because fact, fr frankly, the only, among the very few people who actually fit, uh, in their own mind at least, the definition of a normal lawyer is a legal academic. I'd, I'd like to give a more basic uh, or different kind of answer to that question. I think part of the problem is a lack of alternatives. I mean, when you have a bad economy, that's what the chart shows. More people think about going to law school, and we have a bad economy right now. But I mean lack of alternatives in another sense. We, we funnel people to law school through majors like pre-law. I mean, what does a pre-law person do if they're not headed on a track towards law school? Uh, we have other majors that high percentage of students apply to law school. I mean, political science. It's unfortunate because our society needs literate people with these kinds of backgrounds, but if they don't see an employment track available to them uh, and then see as an alternative law school and, and you know the year before half of the people who graduated from that program went to law school, uh, it becomes normal to think in those terms. And I think we need to provide, first we need a better economy is, is a part of the answer, but, but also we need to provide more, uh, more information earlier on to students about uh, different ways in which you can have the same liberal arts education. We, we can't all be STEM majors. We, you can have a liberal arts education and, and pursue different alternative career tracks that doesn't involve going to law school. Uh, so, I mean, that's, this is a kind of bigger picture answer to the problem. But let me just say one last thing. A lot of people go to law school because they believe that they can do good as a lawyer. And... Uh, we need, it. we need lawyers, we need a legal system, and we need people with these ideas. And I think one of the terrible aspects of the current situation is that people have become very cynical about law school as a result of, 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 of what we've been doing. And I, I wonder about the long-term consequences of a, a generation of graduates who, who view with distrust their introduction into the law, and that is coming through law schools that have been less than forthcoming about their employment prospects. More questions? Uh, yes. Uh, 
Hi, my name's Tom Gordon. I'm with an organization called Consumers for a Responsive Legal System, uh, which works to reduce some of the regulatory barriers that the profession has put in place, which prevent people from having a wider range of legal service providers. Uh, my question for the panel is, to what extent do you think that regulations on things like unauthorized practice of law, which require uh, virtually anybody touching law to have a law degree and uh, bar membership, to what extent are those types of restrictions uh, increase the law school bubble? Well, they've, they've certainly supported it. They've helped support it. Uh, I want to say about that, those restrictions are beginning to break down uh, in various ways. They're now in many cities, immigration service clinics, uh, divorce clinics, uh, staffed by non-lawyers who, who know how to fill, the, fill out the forms and go file the forms at a much lower rate than lawyers. Uh, Washington State Supreme Court recently recognized the legal technician uh, status. Uh, in the past, these were legal jobs, and, uh, and they're being taken away, essentially. And I think this is a process that will, will, will not be halted. I think it will continue. Uh, and, and for that reason, exacerbate the, the significant part of the legal market. Right? We're now charging that much money, which you can go to six months of training and come out capable at doing lawyer, uh, filling out immigration forms. Uh, so, uh, so I, I think this has had a piece of it, uh, a significant part of propping up what we're doing. On the other hand, I think there are many signs that that, that is going to break down. And, and once it begins, I think it'll just steamroll because we can see that you can do this kind of work quite well without a three-year legal education. Yeah, I mean, I think that's clearly happening. There's been a massive breakdown in the, uh, in the barriers to entry. Uh, just one example, a huge amount of uh, the kind of document review that used to be done by junior associates at big firms, which can be done essentially by a bright 12-year-old, has now, now been outsourced uh, to people who uh, have law degrees but are not really practicing law and are being paid you know, 25, sometimes less, dollars an hour um, to do it. Plus, you have the whole do-it-yourself luring phenomenon, legal zoom, no low, et cetera. And so what you have now is a cartel that really only works for legal academia because it doesn't control entry uh, in any significant way into, into, uh, uh, into the market for people who want to be lawyers. We have a massive, massive oversupply. Uh, and it doesn't, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't maintain the kinds of uh, uh, strictures, the kind of guild restrictions that inure to the benefits of lawyers, except maybe at the very, very high end of the profession. It works extremely well for law schools uh, and the universities that uh, extract um, surplus from, uh, from the law schools, but, it, but, it, but the cartel isn't really working for anybody else. More questions? Um, yes. Evan Wood, MCI. I, you guys talked about a lot about the moral hazard of the federal phone federal uh, loans system. Um, you guys also mentioned a little bit about the uh, federal grants and subsidies that uh, a lot of professors are um, forced to uh, draw in in order to, I think you guys said, prove their own worth. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's helped to uh, finance a little bit of a bubble and in terms of uh, in the same way the federal loan system has? Um, <coughs> anyone like to go? I'm not sure I caught the question. Was it about hard to hear every every word? But was it about research grants? Did you say that professors were getting money for, or 
Yeah, yes, research grants, uh, federal funding, uh, akin to the federal loan system that was sort of increasing the supply of funds that was helping to drive up tuition costs. Well, I mean, what drives up the tuition costs are the, uh, the availability of federal loans. There's very little in the way of federal grant money in law schools. Uh, law schools, and especially lower-tier law schools, are very, very much tuition-driven. Lower-tier law schools get 95% uh, of their uh, operating revenue from tuition, and they get about 90% of that tuition from federal loans. So basically, if you cut the supply you know, at all on the, on the, on the federal loan front, um, a huge number of law schools would just close overnight. Maybe this is what you're getting at. So in you know, academia at large, a lot of times professors, instead of teaching classes, are doing funded research. Uh, so is there, is maybe the question is, is there, and I, I have no idea, is there a broad phenomenon of law professors who are doing funded research instead of teaching, and so then you have to hire more professors no. to do the teaching? No, there's a, there's a broad phenomenon of, of law professors who are not teaching because their law schools pay them not to teach, but the federal government, uh, with few exceptions, doesn't, doesn't underwrite that. And consulting is important for some law professors uh, who sometimes make a good deal of money out of it. I have actually been kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop uh, for proposals to have massive federal research grants to keep law professors writing the law review articles that we know are so important. Um, <laughs> because if the alternative is to see legal academia shrink, that would be unthinkable. Um, now, uh, let me also recognize that in the second row, uh, I um, was unfair to him earlier. Hi, my name is Wes Huffman with Washington Partners, and uh, I guess my question is on the, the taxpayer side and taxpayer concerns. The biggest thing that catches attention is IBR, because it's the most widely used program, it's the most highly touted by the law schools and others, but should there be a big concern with public school loan forgiveness? Uh, we, as we talk about these people that are coming out of law schools that are either looking for JD preferred or JD doesn't matter, as you know, Professor Campos says, it seems like a lot of them are going to end up going into government and nonprofit work. And when that happens, that drops it down from 20 years to 10 years, and we're talking about a massive amount of forgiveness. So I guess, A, should that be a, a concern for taxpayers going forward? And B, are there other graduate schools out there that this grad plus plus IBR slash public service loan forgiveness, should that be kind of on the radar going forward? <laughs> Well, I mean, for all of higher ed, it should be, every taxpayer should be very concerned about it because it strikes me that basically what it's saying is we're going to give you, we're going to forgive you the taxpayer money so you can make a career out of getting more taxpayer money. Uh, now, that's uh, maybe a little bit unfair generalization, but it's kind of like, hey, it, we're going to give you all this money if you become a bureaucrat and then you make your career getting money from taxpayers, we'll forgive this for you. So, yes, that's a problem, but it's certainly not just law schools. Now, the problem is that law schools, and other grad schools, of course, you then bring on more debt, which is more to be forgiven. Um, and so we should be very concerned about that. I don't know whether, uh, you know, I think we should worry about any school where somebody goes and does that. And the only thing that keeps you from getting that, generally speaking, is if you go to a non-accredited school and then you can't qualify for the federal loans. Yeah, I want, can I just say one thing quickly about that? I, I think it's important not to, uh, oh, to uh, exaggerate the extent to which there is actually some kind of rational um, planning going on here in the form of the behaviors of either law schools or law students. Um, I, from my own researches into this question, the vast majority of people going to law school are unaware of the existence of income-based repayment. 
although that's changing. Um, certainly when they enrolled, very, very few people who are currently in law school knew about it. Uh, law schools have not gone on this orgy of spending because of the availability of IBR. You might think that they were like sitting there thinking, oh boy, this is going to be great. Now we can like, charge whatever we want and the taxpayers have to pick it up. It didn't work that way uh, because IBR, frankly, was really very much under the radar until the last year or two. All of this has happened without people even being aware that there was this back-end taxpayer bailout available. And now uh, there's a law professor at Georgetown, uh, Philip Schrag, who's arguing you know, very vigorously that basically it doesn't matter how much law schools charge, and that's great because the taxpayers are going to be um, uh, picking up the bill uh, and so we should just, you know, basically wallow like pigs in slop. I may be somewhat uh, hyperbolically describing his views and how wonderful it is uh, that we literally don't have to pay no more attention whatsoever to whether there's any relationship whatsoever between what we're offering and what it's worth. And, uh, you know, that's, I guess, uh, legal scholarship at its best. <laughs> that may not be how Professor Schrag characterizes his own argument, but uh, <clears throat> we have time for one more question or two if they're short. Uh, yes, in the corner, one of them. Good afternoon. My name is Douglas Gold. I'm a 1978 graduate of the Washington University School of Law. Um, it seems to me that one of the points that you raised, uh, Mr. Campos, is that there needs to be a radicalization in the view of law school. I agree with you. It's very clear what you gentlemen have pointed out. So what can we as practitioners, both active or retired, do to put on red t-shirts and take to the streets to help a change in an educational system which is not benefiting the public? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, the, the, the ABA, which I realize is a kind of, uh, of sort of, cons you know, sort of a legal fiction in a lot of ways. Nevertheless, the ABA as an institution has to have pressure put on it by all sectors of the bar to actually have some sort of regulatory oversight. I mean, maybe, you know, come the revolution, we'll have a, you know, a, a, a you know, a, 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 you know, a, a complete laissez-faire system as many people here would like. But in the interim, if we have actual regulation, that regulation has to at least have some uh, effect, which right now it really doesn't, except a, a completely negative one. Another thing that I think is crucial is for practicing lawyers uh, and, 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 and other members of the bar, judges in particular, to, uh, to be aware of how, how uh, dire the situation has become. I mean, I all the time run into people uh, uh, who, are, who, who, are, who are, you know, practitioners and, and judges and others who have no idea that things are this way. And in fact, uh, they literally don't believe me when I say to them, uh, you know, it costs, uh, costs $53,000 a year now to, to go to Cornell and just in tuition or whatever. Actually, I think it's up to 57 or, you know, uh, whatever the number is. And uh, they'll say to me, uh, uh, no, that's, that's not true. <laughs> and I'll say, no, no, well, you know, this is not like, you know, classified information. You can just like go on the internet and look it up. <laughs> but I mean, they literally have a reaction of complete disbelief, which is understandable. And this is, uh, you know, this phenomenon, I think, of, 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 to some extent, of, you know, sort of baby boomer cluelessness, which, you know, you know, I've been guilty of as well, right, which is just you've completely lost track. You just cannot believe that it costs this much to go to law school. You cannot believe that the situation is as bad as it is for recent graduates. And I think it's crucial for members of the bar to, uh, to, to learn about this subject and to push back against the law schools and to say, no, I won't give you any money until you stop doing this. We have run out of time. Um, 
Before we thank our panel, let me uh, tell you about the logistics of getting lunch. Uh, lunch will be uh, upstairs on Cato's second level uh, in the conference center. You will be walking up the lovely spiral staircase at the front of the building. Uh, if you need a restroom, wait until you are on the second floor and wait until you are passing the yellow wall. Uh, that is where the bathrooms are. Uh, please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Thank you.